0: The United Fruit Company was a U.S.-based corporation founded in 1899 after the merger of two large banana trading companies based in Central and South America. The melding of these companies led to control of huge swaths of land and shipping routes throughout Central America and the Caribbean coasts of Colombia, Ecuador, and the West Indies. The United Fruit Company's only real competition in this industry, the growing and shipping of various types of fruit from these regions, but primarily bananas, to markets around the world, was another corporation called the Standard Fruit Company, which would later become the Dole Food Company. But much of its network at the time was completely uncontested. During this period, this part of the world was filled with what came to be called banana republics, countries that were politically unstable and often kept that way intentionally so that plantation-owning, fruit-exporting corporations could essentially own local infrastructure politics, and in some cases, the people as well, in practice, if not in technical legal reality. Some scholars have called this setup neocolonialism, and that seems like a pretty apt term to me. The United Fruit Company merged with another company called AMK, otherwise known as the American Seal Cap Company a company that made milk caps, among other things. And unified, they formed a new company called United Brands Company. That happened in 1970. AMK was run by a man named Eli Black, who became its CEO in 1954. Under his leadership, it was converted from a company that made milk caps into an acquisition vehicle, meaning it was more or less an umbrella company used to buy out other companies to create massive, sprawling, powerful brands that could throw their weight around. Black was then hired to run the United Fruit Company in 1968, and in 1970, he orchestrated the aforementioned merger of United Fruit and AMK to create the United Brands Company. What happened next, though, Led to a crisis that would come to be labeled Banana Gate, named after the Watergate scandal that occurred in 1972, which was around this time. And to understand Banana Gate, you have to know about the Union of Banana Exporting Countries, a cartel of banana exporting Central and South American countries that was organized in an attempt to mimic the success and benefits of OPEC, a cartel of oil exporting companies that was founded by Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela in 1960. Cartels are generally oriented around controlling the business atmosphere surrounding a particular resource. So in the case of OPEC, these countries were able to work together to set the price of oil worldwide. And because they controlled the majority of available exportable oil, this worked pretty well for them and continues to work decently well for them today. The banana cartel was intended to work the same way. At the time, the countries where these banana plantations were located were earning about 17 cents for every dollar of banana profits. Most of the profits on these banana sales were being claimed by the fruit companies. So the theory was that by working together, these countries could put pressure on these powerful fruit companies and keep more of the profits at home where the bananas are being grown. Three things then happened in relatively quick succession. First, Eli Black took the helm of the newly formed United Brands Company and discovered that they had far less cash on hand than he had suspected. And consequently, the ambitious plans he had outlined for the company would not work out as he had hoped. Second, Hurricane Fifi rolled through Honduras. Destroying many local banana plantations, which further reduced both operating capital and near future profits for the company. And third, the Union of Banana Exporting Countries Cartel announced that they would be upping the export taxes on their shipments, and Honduras, leading the pack, announced they would increase the tax on every 40 pound box of bananas from 25 cents to 50 cents to get the ball rolling. Which does not sound like a whole lot of money, but considering that Honduras supplied almost a quarter of United Brand's bananas, that was a pretty big deal. It added up to a whole lot of money. So this increased banana tax was passed in Honduras, but then, mysteriously, it was reduced back to 25 cents before it could be fully implemented. It only came out about two years later that Eli Black had bribed then-president of Honduras Oswaldo Lopez Ariano with $1.25 million a year for two years paid into a personal Swiss bank account to convince him to lower the export tax back down to 25 cents a box. The resultant backpedaling by Honduras, them reversing the decision to raise their banana export taxes, also led to the collapse of the nascent banana cartel, which was a double win then on the back of these bribes for the fruit companies. This revelation about these bribes only came out because in 1975, Eli Black committed suicide by jumping from the window of his 45th floor office in the Pan Am building in Manhattan The Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, investigated the suicide and found evidence of his bribery of the Honduran president, along with evidence that he had paid $750,000 in bribes to an Italian official to prevent any import restrictions from being levied against his company and his industry in Italy. In the aftermath of Bananagate, this bribery being made public, the Honduran president and his government were ousted in a coup d'etat, and United Brands railways and other assets were nationalized by the government. Most of what they formerly owned in the area that was not nationalized was sold off to other companies and local interests, including their banana plantations and other land. The trading of United Brands stock was halted, After the scandal was uncovered and its CEO committed suicide, and the company was bought into and later bought with controlling interest by a man named Carl Linder Jr., an American billionaire and the owner of the American Financial Group, which is another kind of umbrella company. After the buyout, the company was renamed Chiquita Brands International. This was in 1990, and they renamed it that because their Chiquita Banana branding was one of the strongest under their larger fruit brand umbrella of companies, and the headquarters of the company was moved to Cincinnati. Perhaps the most significant consequence of Bananagate is that the SEC decided in its aftermath that bribing foreign officials is probably not ideal. It was actually technically legal what United Brands did, but the concealment of these bribes from shareholders was most certainly not. That was the illegal part. So to simplify things in the future, the U.S. government passed the Foreign Corruption Practices Act of 1977, which contains two main provisions. The first outlines how businesses must conduct their accounting so as to make things as transparent as possible to relevant parties, including the government. And the second is to ensure that companies do not bribe foreign officials in order to obtain or retain business. The FCPA, or the threat of it at least, seems to have prevented or at least led to the more skillful concealment of many flagrant abuses within this space in the years since it was implemented in 1977. But of course, where there is a will, there is a way, there has been Plenty of extra governmental influence leveraged in countries around the world before and after this ruling. And when direct individual bribes in Swiss bank accounts cannot be used, other methods tend to sift in and fill the gaps. In April 2012, for instance, a piece was published in the New York Times outlining efforts by Walmart of Mexico and Central America, the Latin America wing of Walmart, to bribe officials. Throughout Mexico, in order to obtain construction permits. This information was provided by a former executive of the company, and it was later confirmed with credible evidence that laws had been broken. This is notable first because the allegations were, quote-unquote, hushed up for a very long time by Walmart executives in the United States. And second, because Walmart has used its massive influence to try to weaken the FCPA the Anti-Bribery Act of 1977, within the U.S. via its lobbyists and other means of political sway. A civil lawsuit filed by a dozen pension funds was thrown out in Delaware courts in January of 2018, and that was related to this alleged crime, but the rest of the case is still being looked at. They haven't decided what to do with it yet, but it could be by the time the main criminal case is actually completed and they come to a decision, that the law under which they would be charged might no longer apply to them, at least not to any meaningful degree, because of their ability to influence and at times manipulate the political process under which they operate. What I would like to talk about today is the practice of taxing shipped goods, and more specifically applying a particular type of tax called a tariff on goods, sometimes to balance perceived or real trade inequalities, sometimes to score political points, sometimes to use as a threat or a punishment, and sometimes to support a particular, perhaps politically powerful company or industry. And whatever the original intention, how the application of tariffs can sometimes spiral out of control into something called a trade war. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. So today, instead of starting with just one article... I want to present a small collection of pieces, all of which were published within a few days of the day I'm recording this, and all of which focus on a slightly different angle of the same topic, that of a potential trade war between the United States and China. There have been fears about this potentiality from the day Trump stepped into office, and in fact before then, too, as the application of tariffs have long been a means of trying to balance the international trade books And there have long been imbalances between the U.S. and China, though those imbalances are fine or unfair, negative or largely positive, depending on who you ask. But in the latter half of mid-March 2018, the rhetoric in this space escalated, and fears seemed to become possibilities, and possibilities began to manifest as real-world action. The Washington Post published a piece entitled, China Slams Trump's Reckless and Arrogant Tariffs, Warns of Retaliation. And in this piece, they note that Trump's public promises to impose new tariffs on some types of trade, particularly those where the U.S. is facing a deficit. And I'll get into the specifics of some of these terms in a few minutes. In those areas, we need to do something to rebalance things because... Trump said, American workers are not engaged in a fair fight. China's policymakers countered that if the U.S. goes down this route, China will not take it sitting down. They will hit back with their own tariffs, and Trump's efforts to ostensibly help the everyday U.S. blue-collar worker will backfire, leading to more difficulties for those very people. Around the same time, USA Today published a piece entitled Trump tariffs on China imports could raise prices for shoppers. In this article, they discuss some of the numbers involved in this potential international row, noting that Trump's threatened 25% tariffs on 50 to $60 billion worth of Chinese exports to the U.S., in addition to other, recently announced more broad and sweeping 25% tariffs on imported steel and 10% tariffs. On imported aluminum were very threatening gestures and could cause some harm to elements of the Chinese economy. They also note that the counter threat leveled by the Chinese to impose 15 to 25 percent tariffs on $3 billion worth of pork, aluminum pipes, steel, and wine from the U.S. could be just as destructive for the United States. And that's in addition to all of the difficulties it could cause for consumers who are accustomed to cheaper prices in both countries. Business Insider published a piece entitled The Trade War with China Could Turn Out to be Trump's Economic Afghanistan. And in this piece, they posit that, although it maybe sounds cool to people who don't know what they're talking about, to folks who are not up on their international trade relations jargon, a trade war, especially between the U.S. of today and the China of today, reliant on each other as they are, could turn out to be a long, seemingly unending conflict that becomes a weight around Trump's neck for the rest of his term in office, something that he cannot shake off or easily back away from, and which prevents him from accomplishing anything else. But thankfully, as the Washington Post notes, at least one side of the potential conflict seems to realize this. In a piece entitled China Appeals for Cooperation, as it warns of trade war, it's reported that Chinese officials have countered Trump's bombastic brags about trade wars being great and easy to win with a seeming reality check. Trade wars, they note, are not good for anyone Involved. In fact, they kind of universally suck, and though they won't be pushed around if threatened or over tariffed, the Chinese say that they are not going to seek out such conflict because that would be stupid. The Guardian adds more details to that argument in a piece entitled Paper Tigers US and China in Dispute Over Tariffs, but Trade War Looks Remote. In this article, they note that even though Trump is being loud and bravadoful about the possibility of this kind of conflict. In fact, neither side really wants it, and Trump's public support of it may actually be some kind of crazy man with the red button tactic, trying to make the Chinese believe that he actually wants a trade war and will do a lot of stupid stuff that hurts everyone if he doesn't get some serious payoffs from the Chinese. The shape those payoffs should take, it's posited, is a move away from some of the games China has played with intellectual property. It would be generous to say that they've played fast and loose with this for the past few decades, as most of their biggest businesses are predicated on technologies and intellectual property that they all but, or in some cases blatantly, stole from U.S., Japanese, and European-based businesses. And it should also come in the form of rebalanced import ratios, as right now, the US buys a whole lot more stuff from China than China buys from the US. There are multiple reasons for that, but on paper especially, that imbalance looks pretty bad. The Sydney Morning Herald disagrees that this is just a verbal spat that will not amount to anything. They published a piece entitled, Back Down. Unlikely as China toughens rhetoric on trade war, in which they back up this assertion. Their main argument seems to be that although a trade war would be bad for everyone, it would be worse for the US, which is coming from the stronger overall position and which therefore has more to lose, including face, not just money. It's also quite likely, they say, that China will not back down, even if that would be the proper move in terms of trade, because they've built up an argument that they've made publicly, that they've committed to, and that makes it more difficult to backtrack and appear to give in. China's leadership is kept in power, in part because they are taken seriously by their people as a growth engine. And if they made this argument and then contradicted themselves too starkly, that would perhaps benefit them in some ways in the short term, but it could backfire in the long term as their perceived legitimacy was reduced. So it's argued they will probably stick to their guns unless they are offered a clean way out. One of the more counterintuitive arguments that I saw, in the sense that it was not echoed by any other major news publication, was published in the Daily Beast. And that's interesting as well, as the Daily Beast is usually, editorially, very against the Trump administration. But this piece actually argues that Trump would likely win this type of conflict were it to move into a more serious stage. Now, to be clear, the guy who they had write this piece actually wrote a book about the impending collapse of China. So this argument obviously fits with his larger worldview. But nonetheless, this piece is interesting for the strong stand that it takes, and it's entitled, Why China Will Lose a Trade War with Trump. The main points made here are predicated on China's economic position relative to the U.S. Specifically, in 2016, 68% of China's overall merchandise trade surplus was sold to or through U.S. entities. And in 2017, that number ballooned to 88.8%. Further, the U.S. economy is far larger than China's. $19.39 trillion compared to $12.84 trillion. And the gap is also very likely a lot bigger than that, as China is famous for inflating its numbers, both on the local level and the national level. So how close that official number is to reality, we can't be certain. But their economic scale is very likely at least a bit less than that number that they present. And finally, the U.S. economy is actually growing faster than China's right now. And China seems to be on the verge of a serious debt crisis, which is something a lot of rich Chinese business people saw coming, which led to an evacuation of money from the country back in 2015 and 2016. It's estimated that around $2 trillion was funneled out and invested in assets in other countries before the Chinese government could staunch the flow of that money with what are often referred to as draconian measures. But the economic situation that led to that monetary flight, led to these people who know about money and the situation within the country, to leave and invest anywhere but China, most or all of those variables are still in play. On top of all that, China's apparently been struggling to bolster the value of its currency, so although they are threatening to sell the U.S. Treasury notes that they hold, it's assumed by some that they will probably need to do that anyway, regardless, in the near future to keep their currency stable. So that threat is maybe moot. This potential trade war is not only a macro crisis. It's also a concern for folks down at the local level. There was a piece in the National Interest that addressed this concern, and it was entitled Americans Will Pay the Price for Trump's Toughened Approach with China. This article focused on the local and industry-specific downsides of a trade war. Namely, if China puts tariffs on U.S.-made pork, the pork industry in the U.S. suffers, perhaps catastrophically, to the point where it cannot recover. The same is true of wine, of pipes, of anything else they choose to target. And while it's true that there could be some benefit for some industries— U.S.-made steel, for instance, could benefit in the short term from less foreign competition. Other industries that rely on cheap steel prices that are made possible by that international competition, like the airline industry, which is one of the United States' biggest exporters, they could suffer in the trade-off because that cheap steel from overseas will no longer be available and it will no longer lower the overall prices within the steel market. The Peninsula Daily News published a piece entitled Farmers Angry About Being Placed in Middle of Trade War. And this piece, as you may have guessed, is about the agricultural byproduct of this sort of international disagreement. And it notes that hog producers and apple growers and winemakers and ethanol producers all have a whole lot to lose here especially since many of these industries have smaller, up-and-coming competitors elsewhere who would be more than happy to pick up the slack if the prices for US-made products on the Chinese market were to suddenly increase by 15 or 25%, as they would be if these threatened tariffs were to be applied. That also might mean that the fastest-growing middle class in the world, in China, may slow It's up to this point fast-paced adoption of American tastes and preferences. Wine, in particular, has seen stunning growth in the region, with the value of U.S. wine imports to China increasing by 450% in the past decade. If wine and other U.S. exports become more expensive, it may be that other goods become more preferred. And that sets the preferences in the growing Chinese middle class for years to come, Weakening the long term U.S. business prospects in the country. We've also seen a lot of activity in the stock market as a result of this potential conflict. Time magazine published a piece recently entitled Trade War Fears Deal U.S. Stock Market Its Worst Week in Two Years. The U.S. stock market sunk with the news that this was something for which Trump was banging the drum, and with the secondary news that China was banging the drum right back. Tech stocks, which have been leading the way for the U.S. market in recent years, dropped nearly 8% in a single week. And the finance industry, particularly banks, also fell sharply. Of course, the results were mixed elsewhere, as noted in a CNBC article entitled, This International Market is Primed to Benefit if a U.S.-China Trade War Erupts. This piece relates back to something I mentioned a moment ago, that if the US or China, or both, suddenly put each other's industries at a disadvantage, that creates openings for entrants from other countries. Fruit and steel and aluminum piping from Brazil and India and Nigeria entering these markets with an advantage. Stock market activity in these other countries has fluctuated as a result of this news. Some taking a hit because of their connections to the US market, but some growing fairly significantly, with speculation that this could be the opportunity these overseas industries have been waiting for. The day I'm recording this episode, though, things seem to be cooling off a little bit, and a lot of today's pieces on the subject are taking a similar tone to this one that was published on Market Watch, which is entitled, US and China said to be talking behind the scenes to avoid trade war. The idea being offered up here is that yes, the rhetoric is big and the news is all a flutter with all of the mostly negative possible outcomes of a trade war. But behind the scenes, out of the limelight, off the record, both sides are trying to calm this thing down and limit the damage that is done. Neither side really wants a big conflict here, and they're trying to figure out a way that both sides can step away from the negotiating table, able to declare a victory and scoring points with their own constituents. As a consequence of that, at least in part, the U.S. market seems to have calmed down, leading to a short piece in the New York Times entitled Tech Boosts Wall Street as Trade War Fears Ebb. And that's just days after that other piece about the U.S. stock market dropping faster than it has in over two years. As someone who has money in the stock market right now, particularly in tech-related ETFs, I can tell you firsthand that the market has been a wild ride for the duration of this story. And because it's not over yet, there's a very real possibility and maybe even a likelihood that the plot line will have shifted again, maybe a few times before this episode goes live. I expect that it will be several weeks to come before we see the outlines of an actual next step for both China and the U.S., and for all the other entities and infrastructure that have been tangled up in this blustery mess. So, the scene set. Let's talk about what all these pieces are actually alluding to. The concepts being discussed, above and beyond the specifics of this particular potential trade war. What, for example, is a trade war? A trade war typically occurs when a tariff from one country leads to a counter-tariff, which leads to a counter-counter-tariff, which then causes a trade-related economic spiral to occur between these two and often more adjacent economic entities. A tariff is a tax placed on a particular type of good generally from a particular region. So the United States could put a 20% tariff on steel coming from China, but allow the exact same type and quality of steel to come into the country from Spain without any additional taxes attached. The idea behind a tariff is to incentivize the local market to buy from one source or another. If steel from one place is 20% more expensive chances are local aerospace companies and builders will opt for the cheaper stuff, not the tariffed stuff. This allows a country like the United States to potentially lessen the amount of Chinese steel coming into the country without putting a more stringent trade barrier into place. Like an industry-specific embargo or a quota, the latter of which would limit the total amount of steel or whatever other good we're talking about, that is allowed to come into the country from the region that has been quoted. So tariffs are meant to be used as scalpels, and are sometimes used protectively to incentivize the use of local resources instead of those imported from elsewhere. If China is able to produce cheaper steel for whatever reason, then ships it to the US, where they can sell it more cheaply than US-produced steel, that could be a problem for the US steel industry. And a protective tariff could help the locals compete by artificially inflating the prices on the cheaper Chinese imported stuff. Also, in some cases, the country producing the product, let's say China with their steel, has their own system of subsidies in place, meaning that the government will pay the industry in question to produce what they're producing. This is one way that a government can counter a foreign tariff by essentially covering the industry's losses with an equal subsidy, but it's also a means of allowing them to compete in foreign markets and kill off their competitors. Their steel industry could afford to price their product super low if their government is paying them on the back end. And that subsidized lower price could then put their foreign competition, like the steel industry in the US, out of business because they cannot compete with this artificially decreased price. And China, in particular, has been known to do this, to use this tactic, operating at a loss in some industries in order to dominate foreign markets, flooding them with their steel, their electronics, and so on. This is often called dumping. They dump cheap steel into other countries to put the local steel industry out of business. But in the cases where tariffs get out of control, though, And in some cases, when these tariffs are actually quite reasonable, but they just get highly publicized for some reason, they can lead to counter-tariffs. And that can lead to counter-counter-tariffs, which places an increased weight on an increasing number of industries in both countries. And that can lead to a trade war. And all trade war really means is that instead of using guns and artillery against each other, The countries are firing trade weapons at their opponent and trying to outlast the other guy as industries and consumers on both sides suffer from these new weaponized taxes that have been put into place. Usually, when this happens, the end results are a little bit mixed. In most cases, neither side emerges totally unscathed. But one side usually does take the lion's share of the economic devastation, while the other side typically takes a big public relations hit within their own country, and potentially their reputation within the world also suffers. So there's often more monetary consequence on one side and more of a reputation consequence on the other. One specific, relatively recent example of a trade war is sometimes called the Anglo-Irish Trade War, and sometimes locally just called the Economic War. The short version of this story is that in the 1930s, the Free State Irish government decided, based on some changes to their agreement with the British, that they no longer owed them money, that up until that point it was understood that they owed to the British. This was part of a larger effort on the part of the Irish to recover from their Great Depression, which had begun in 1929, and the effects of which they still suffered. So they levied tariffs on a bunch of British goods in an effort to rebuild their own industries, especially agricultural industries. So this would raise the practical cost of English imports, encouraging Irish locals to buy from local businesses instead. And they did everything else that they could to become economically self-sufficient, and to extract themselves from the economic reliance on the British that had swept over them in the preceding years. And part of that was deciding that this money that it was assumed that they owed was something that they no longer owed. The British, to put it mildly, did not care for this emerging state of affairs, and the denial of the debt they felt was still owed to them by the Irish was the final straw. They introduced their own 20% tariffs on Irish cattle and agricultural products, which was crippling for the Irish, as agricultural exports to the British accounted for about 90% of all of their exports across all industries. So this led to a set of counter-tariffs on the same things that were coming into the free state from the UK, along with a tariff on coal of which the UK was a primary exporter around the world, but particularly in the region, and the Irish were some of their biggest customers for their coal. This standoff led to some pretty dire consequences within Ireland, and most of their agricultural base was left unable to reliably export their goods, which forced them to completely reconfigure their setup in an attempt to feed everyone within the country, tillage style, instead of their usual surplus model that allowed them to export food and then spend the money that they earned to buy food, to participate in that trading system. So they had to basically give in to the reality that it would be a couple of years at least before they could afford to go back to business as usual and actually participate in the global trading system. They had to just struggle to survive and feed themselves. On the British side of things, they did comparatively okay, but the local coal industry experienced a truly bad couple of years, and that industry complained enough in the press and to the government that the British eventually gave in a bit, and they developed the so-called Coal-Cattle Pact with the Irish in 1935. And as a part of that, the British agreed to increase its import of Irish cattle by a third in return for Ireland doing the same for British coal. Now, this whole situation had put Ireland in a pretty bad situation. And even as things started to look a little bit better because of that pact, it still led them to become increasingly insular and protectionist, eventually declaring that the majority ownership of free state companies would have to be limited to Irish citizens. You would have to be Irish to be the majority owner of a company that was based in the country. And that caused many of their largest companies, especially those that dealt internationally, like Guinness, to leave the country for friendlier regulatory environments elsewhere. Now, thankfully for everyone involved, the Coal Cattle Pact eventually led to a 1938 agreement to drop the trade war completely and to lift all of the duties that were imposed during the previous 5 years Ireland got to feel good about getting some new benefits as a result of this trade war ending and among those benefits was taking possession of a port that the UK had controlled up to that point and they were also able to pay off the money that the British still thought that they owed them but to pay it off in one lump sum that was much smaller than what it would have been otherwise had they paid it off in chunks over many years. They are also able to keep the right to impose new tariffs on British goods in the future to protect Irish industries, though they did so less aggressively moving forward than they had in the past. The British, after some bad local PR, and political shakeups that resulted from this trade war, they were able to return to a state of affairs where everything was generally weighed in their favor, though they were not able to enjoy those benefits for very long as they entered what became World War II in the following year, in 1939. Ireland, for their part, remained neutral and were able to maintain that neutrality, interestingly, in part because they gained control of that port. From the UK at the end of the trade war that allowed them to remain neutral and economically independent. So the question here is Does a trade war actually accomplish anything? And the answer to that question entirely depends on what it is that you're hoping to achieve and whether you're willing to give up a whole lot to achieve that particular goal. There is, and there will likely continue to be, A lot of bluster coming from President Trump and his camp, because in part that's just who he is and the personality that he has used to shape his administration, and in part, frankly, because there are some aspects of the U.S. trade relationship with China that is perhaps worth being blustery about. Likewise, I think we will see a lot more tactfully expressed bluster from the Chinese side, who have recently undertaken a shift in their governmental structure, allowing their current president, Xi Jinping, to govern without term limits, potentially making him the leader for life of the country if he can maintain popular support and reinforce his power infrastructure. That means that he will likely do what he can to reassert China's place on the global stage, but he'll do so with an eye on the long-term consequences of the choices that he makes. So China will not want to look weak, but they will probably avoid anything that makes the folks at home feel like things are moving in the wrong direction in terms of how they are able to live their day-to-day lives. Both of these goals, I would argue, could be accomplished in many different ways. So the question in this specific circumstance comes down to whether or not they will be able to negotiate terms that would allow them to reach those goals in an equitable manner. And if not, things could spiral and both sides could end up weaker for it in multiple ways, economic and otherwise. If they can slow things down in the near future, And keep the conflict super limited, if Trump can get China to be more proactive on their intellectual property oversteps, for instance, and their dumping of raw materials at low prices, subsidized by the government back home into foreign markets, including the U.S. market, that could be a real tangible victory for his administration. Likewise, if China can be seen as the entity that kept the unpredictable, unreliable U.S. president from causing too much damage, and also perhaps as an entity that is playing by the global world trade organization-enforced rules, they could reinforce their position as the future dominant superpower and current regional world leader, the sane, generally benevolent, and trustworthy country that can be dealt with rationally, which can only be good for their economic prospects and relationships. Now, at the moment I'm recording this, it is still unclear which direction this current bout will tilt, and whether the combatants will pull back before being sucked into something that neither one of them probably actually wants, but which neither one of them can afford to appear to be afraid of, or to walk away from prematurely either. But even though the stock market is crazily unpredictable under these sorts of circumstances, I guess we can be... Thankful that of all the types of war that could be waged, at least the damage caused by this type is limited to the numbers in bank accounts. Though, of course, that's probably small consolation to the owners of those bank accounts. The book that I'd like to recommend today is kind of an unusual genre, for me at least. It's a cookbook entitled Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast The Fundamentals of Artisan Bread and Pizza by Ken Forkish. This is a book that I have found a whole lot of value in. I have been learning to cook over the past couple of years after a lifetime of never cooking, and I decided to start baking more seriously recently, trying to learn to bake bread. In particular. And this book stood out to me because of the simplicity and the focus of it. It's all about producing bread in this traditional French fashion, that is, unenriched bread. So bread that is made entirely out of flour, water, salt, and yeast. Different combinations of those four ingredients and heat and time, and then a bunch of different methods of combining it and folding it and pincering it and mixing it and so on. Coming from where I was, staring down the barrel of ignorance the way that I was about this field, the simplicity of this method, this approach, was very appealing to me. But I've also, now at this point, worked my way through all of the bread and pizza recipes in this book, and I've found them to be so versatile and delightful. They're very time-consuming, but also very zen in a way. Once you understand the principles, and once you have the very few pieces of equipment that you need, you can kind of just get into it and make it part of your day. And I've actually taken, over the past several weeks, to making a big boule, a big ball shaped loaf of bread every single week, and then eating off of that for the rest of the week, but making it on the day that I produce this podcast. Because the steps involved fit very nicely with the steps that I have for my production schedule. And the bread itself is just... Fantastic, it's delicious, it's amazing. I cannot believe that I made it every time I pull a loaf out of the oven. And the pizza, which is made from the the same dough pretty much, is also fantastic. And every single recipe is very simple. It takes time to learn to do it well, and you have to use a decent amount of precision and focus to get better at it. But the concepts behind bread making, as taught in this book, are lovely. Now, I've read a half dozen other books on the subject since, and I've been mixing and matching different styles and different approaches. There are a lot of different theories in this space about the correct way or the best way to do things. But if you have never produced fancy artisanal bread, or if you've never baked bread or anything else to begin with, this book is an excellent starter resource for that. The title, again, is Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast, and the author is Ken Forkish. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You will also find there a list of the books that I've written. Consider picking one up if you are into books and want to support my work. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello at Colin is my name on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.